blessing. Thank you for singing this morning. I invite everyone to take your Bibles. Go to 1 Thessalonians with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. We've been going through 1 Thessalonians on Sunday morning, a series I entitled Faithful Living in Trying Times. Faithful Living in Trying Times. How many believe we currently find ourselves in trying times? We do. But church, I'm here to tell you, you can remain faithful. And we're learning that through 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Let's pray together this morning. Let's ask God's blessing over the word today as it is preached. Lord, we love you. And God, we thank you for the opportunity to open the Bible this morning and let you speak to us. Uh, God, we know that difficult days uh, we are in. But God, we know we can have joy and peace because of who Jesus is. God, we know we can remain faithful no matter what is happening around us. We can remain faithful to you. So, Father, we pray that you would encourage us today through your word, that you would speak to our hearts. God, I pray that lives would be changed. And I pray, God, today that we would be inspired this week in a new way uh, to grow and live and mature in our faith so we can remain faithful in these days. And it's in Christ's name we pray. God's people said, amen. As we've been learning, the Thessalonian believers um, were living during a hostile time. In fact, they weren't um, seasoned believers. They were new Christians. Uh, Paul hadn't spent a whole lot of time with with the Thessalonians before he had to, to leave in the middle of the night, if you remember. But the Thessalonian believers, they lived not only in a hostile society toward their faith, being persecuted for their faith, but they also lived in a very corrupt society. Immorality was a way of life and pleasure at any cost was the philosophy of this day. Reading about the culture in Paul's day as he pens these words, be a lot like reading the news or a social media feed today or watching some TV drama in our time. There's a lot of similarities. At that time, they believed that if a man supported his wife and family financially, it was perfectly all right to have extramarital affairs. Sexual misconduct and adultery were widespread in this culture. Prostitution was a business just like any other source of income. Innkeepers kept slave girls for the sexual entertainment of their guests. And adulterous activity was so widespread that the Emperor August established new law codes to reform marital conduct in that time. Living several centuries before Paul's time period, a man by the name Demosthenes, explained the situation this way. Here's what he said. He said, Mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines our day-to-day needs, and wives to bear us legitimate children. Do you all agree with me today? They lived in a corrupt culture. And Paul directly addresses this with the church of Thessalonica because to many this sexually deviant behavior was normal to them. In fact, some religious practices of the Greco-Roman world encouraged this type of behavior. There were sacrifices that literally, uh, during the religious rituals of what went on, there were sacrifices you could make of a sexual nature. 
In Thessalonica, the cult of Kabairi, of Samanthrace, sanctioned sexual relationships that could be considered, that would be considered sinful practices for Christians. Converts to Christianity in Thessalonica would have to would have come from some form of this background of immorality that encouraged such illicit behavior. The struggles we face today are similar to the struggles that these early Christians faced. We live in a corrupt culture. We live in a a world where uh, sex is the god of this world. Illicit behavior is all around us. It's making its way into the churches. And I want to be sure I'm very clear right here on this. Paul was not dealing, listen to me, was not dealing with the evil in the culture. It's very easy for us in the church to, to talk about the evil out here. Paul was directly addressing not the evil in the culture, but his great concern was the conduct of the church. He told the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, lost people are going to act like lost people. He's talking to those in the church. He says, but I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or vile or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a person. Paul's concern was for the church. He could not address how the world behaved. But as these Christians came out of this sexually immoral culture that they had been around, maybe grew up in, they had to understand. Paul wanted to direct them in how to understand to walk in a manner that was pleasing to God. There's no doubt that this is an awkward subject to address. I know it's not a popular subject to expound upon. But when the church called me 10 years ago, it called me with the understanding that I would preach the entire Word of God. Correct. And so when these things come up in, in verses of, of Scripture and, and books that we go through in the Word of God, we should not avoid them, but we should expound upon them and preach them in the context in which they were written. You see, many today are giving in or drifting further and further from the truth. And so Paul makes this plea for purity. I've titled the message, A Plea for Purity. By encouraging them to continually grow. In verse 1, you see this phrase, Excel still more. Paul reminded them of how they started the Christian life. They received the word of Christ and obeyed it. They turned their backs on the world when they found Jesus and the immorality of the world. You see, that type of repentance in someone's life is a crucial start of their faith journey. However, Paul was explaining that they have to continue, must continue to obey and persevere in faith. You see, the Christian life is not so much how we start, it's how we finish. Sometimes when we first believe the gospels, things just seem to fall into place. Y'all remember the day you gave your life to Christ. You surrendered to follow Him. Things fall into place. Life makes sense because we're supposed to live this way. But as we continue to walk, the walk is often difficult to maintain as we face all of the obstacles that the world throws at us. 
You see, the world is out to manipulate and confuse every person in this room. They want you to believe that the Bible is some book of a fantasy, or I was telling someone this morning. Y'all believe, look, do y'all believe the Bible is a supernatural book? Yeah. For centuries, they've tried to destroy it. Emperors, kings, presidents have tried to get rid of the Bible, and they can't because it's a supernatural book. Hey, would y'all agree with me with, as we examine the world scene today, would you say that it's absolutely nonsense to say that the Bible is not relevant? It's nonsense to deny the validity of this book right here. Paul's encouraging these believers to remain faithful. He's urging them forward in their life of faith. No matter the obstacles, he's challenging them to remain faithful. Continue to grow. He's making a plea for them to remain pure. Do not allow the corruption of the world and the cares of life to pull you away is what he's telling them. Church family, we have to be committed to remaining steadfast in this journey of faith and not view it as a sprint but as a marathon. We must press on in faith and be a witness to the world that is obsessed with sexual immorality. We have to demonstrate a different way to the world. In this plea for purity, the Apostle Paul writes and reminds us of the will of God for every person here that claims to be a Christ follower. He reminds us of the will of God. Hey, church, I'm here to tell you that it's not, look, hiding from the pressures of this world and the obstacles that the world wants to put in front of you, hiding from them, that's not the answer. We cannot stick our heads in the sand and act like nothing's going on. Somebody say amen. That's true. The answer, Paul says, is in the will of God. Amid the perversion, Paul was compelled of the Holy Spirit to remind these Christians of God's will for their life. And he reveals God's will for their life and for every follower of Christ's life in three important ways. I want to stop here and say this. We often pray uh, pray for the will of God like it's some some mystery, uh, some puzzle we got to solve. Most of the will of God is revealed in the Word of God. It's not something that you have to pray about. It's just something you're obedient to. And we see that in the text this morning. Paul tells them about the will of God. I want you to notice as we get into this. I want you to notice, number one, he reminds them that it is God's will for you to live holy. Look at verses 1 through 8 with me. It says this, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, for that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Here's what he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all of these things, just as we also told you before we and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We see, he first reminds us that it is God's will for us to live holy. 
Uh, You see, this is not an option for the believer, for the person who says, I am a follower of Christ. This is not an option. Faith and obedience always go together. Jesus always coupled the two together, faith and obedience. It's not works salvation, but it's salvation that works. Somebody say amen. So this is not an option for the Christian, for the person who says they are all in, they are a follower of Jesus. This isn't a multiple choice question. It is God's plan for every follower of his to live holy, a life of holiness separated unto him. There was a little boy one day who messed up on, the, uh, on a project he had at school. He put it off the last minute, and he did his best to get it all together, and he made a terrible grade on this thing. His parents approached him about it, and he says, well, you know, I guess that no one's perfect. Look, isn't, I'm going to stop right here and say this. That is an excuse that far too many Christians use. Well, I'm not perfect. Sometimes I just want to, sometimes I just want to say, duh. <laughs> duh. <laughs> Nobody is. But often that follows, often we're making that excuse in light of something we know we should be doing that we're not doing. And it's becoming an excuse for us to hide behind, uh, to excuse some type of behavior, something we're doing or something we're not doing in our lives, this I'm not perfect excuse. Even bumper stickers proclaim Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. True statement. But the way I read 2 Corinthians 5.21 is that when he became sin for, for, for me, for you, He who knew no sin became sin so that we could what? Become his perfection, his righteousness. It's not about my my perfection, it's about his perfection. So what is holiness? Paul uses a Greek word that's translated in our text, sanctified. It signifies separation from sin to holiness. In this context, literally, it means being set apart from sexual impurity in particular. That's what Paul's dealing with because of the culture and what surrounded them at that time, what he was warning the church against. Holding oneself away from immorality by following the instructions in the verse that follows. Why does God demand that we live a holy lifestyle? Paul gives three reasons. The first reason he gives is God's pleasure. Why should we live holy? Because it pleases God. See, it's fascinating to watch a little child following their dad or their mom. At a certain age, you'll see that the child begins to mimic things the parents do and the things that the parents say. That can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. (laughs) Braden, you know, joke around with, with Tyler and, again, kids mimic what they hear and what they say. And... And Tyler, the other day, he, he was ta- I can't remember who he was talking Maybe he was talking to Eli. He said, you bum? So, so we had to correct Tyler, buddy, look, we, we're not going to call brother a bum. <laughs> kids mimic what they say. Your kids will often, they will ask their parents to watch them do something. Isn't that true? They'll, they'll ask, hey, Daddy, watch this, because they, they want to be pleasing to their parents. You see, similarly, we want to live our lives as a follower of Christ. We want to live our life that pleases Him. And we do this by listening to Him, by spending time with Him in prayer and study. We become more like our Heavenly Father. You see, we live to obey God. Now, church, listen, it's not enough to be intentional to get into the Bible. The Bible must get into you. It's not enough to just sit here and read this, to grow intellectually or to grow spiritually. 
We have to allow the Bible to infuse us and, and us become more like Christ. But God's pleasure, God's pleasure is a reason we should live holy. The second thing is this, our protection. People mistake God's commandments as if he is punishing them. See, but God's commandments aren't meant to steal your joy. They are meant to protect you so that you don't lose your joy. This is so that we live holy lives, we will bring glory to God. Look at verse 4 and 5 again. It says that each of you, uh, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. See, there's this positive side of holiness Paul is referencing here. And now, he says that so that we're not acting like those who don't know God. Do you believe a Christian should act differently than the world acts, than those outside of Christ? Of course we should. We shouldn't embrace the same philosophies of the world. Uh, we are called to be separate from that. Again, that's what holiness is, separation from sin unto God. And, and as we uh, uh, separate ourselves, as we seek to please our Heavenly Father, something begins to take place. We begin to become more like Him. We become more like our Heavenly Father. I was at a family reunion yesterday. I think the last family reunion they had on my dad's side was about 15 years ago. Um, my Uncle Robin's from Dunn, North Carolina. But he's lived in England since he was 18 years old. He was in the military. Met his wife over there, and they just, they just stayed over there. So when you talk to, to my Uncle Robin from Dunn, North Carolina, a country area of North Carolina, he's got this thick British accent. It's fun to hear him talk. It really is. It was fun to hear my, my cousin Kirsty. They were there, her husband, and I got to meet, meet uh, my, their, my, their little, little baby, Remy. And I've heard her say, uh, Tyla, come stand next to me. You know, I mean, it was, it was, it was neat. You know, I love, I love hearing them talk. You know, I'm like, this is my family, you know. I was sitting across from my, that's my Uncle Robin. I was sitting across from my Uncle Ricky. And he began talking to me, and, and he told me, he said, Luke, he says, you were so much like your dad. And I just sat there just very humbled in that moment that he recognized that I was like my dad because that's a compliment to me. But I'm a man of character. and he, He's seeing that. Look, there's nothing more humbling than for somebody to sit there and say, hey, you're like your, your dad when your dad's a man of character, a preacher of the gospel. But you know, it's even more impactful when you're told this, you're not just a Christian. You just don't say you're a Christian. You live like a Christian. You live like a Christian. You see, why do we live holy lives? Because it's pleasing to God, but it, it, it protects us. We become more like Christ and less like this world that we're in. But then our profession. Look at verse 5 again. It says this. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You see, ultimately we have to reflect who our Father is and, and how we choose to live our life, the decisions we make, ultimately reflects who we're trusting, who our Father is. Are you living in a way that reflects Jesus to those who don't know God? That's the question. Can those outside of the faith look at you and say, look, that person's a believer. They know, they know the Lord. They're living their faith 
Verse 6, it says to not defraud your brother. The context, as we have read, remains unchanged throughout this passage, throughout these eight verses. This refers to all destructive social and spiritual implications of illegitimate sexual activity. Verse 6b says this. Notice the last part of verse 6. It says, The Lord is the avenger of all of these things, just as also we told you before and solemnly warned you. Now look at verse 7. For God has not called us to the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, see, so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. See, followers of Christ are not called to impurity, Paul said. The word called in verse 7 is a, re- a reference to the effectual saving call of the Lord Jesus in the life of a person. You see, the life he's referencing, a life of impurity, he, they have been saved from that. They have been saved from that lifestyle. Don't return to that life as Paul's plea with them. We've been saved from that life. We've been given the Holy Spirit. The moment that we repented, uh, that you repented, that I repented of our sin and, and, and decided to follow Christ, the Holy Spirit was given to us and dwelt us the moment we were saved. And Paul says, to reject what I'm saying to you is not to reject me. It's to reject God. So please listen to what I'm saying. He pleads for them to live holy. It's God's will for them. But we notice, secondly, it's also God's will to, for us to live harmoniously. We see in verses 9 and 10, notice what it says. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Here's that phrase again, excel still more. He is urging them to continue to grow that they may remain faithful. Look, a holy life begins with a right relationship with God. This relationship finds its application, now listen to this, in our relationship with other people, in our relationship with others in the body of Christ. Paul's argument is very simple here as he encourages these young believers. He says, look, the more we live like God, the more we love one another. The more we live like God and follow Him, the more we love one another. The word that Paul uses for love is the word Philadelphia. Most in this room would would know what that word means. We have a city. It's called the city of brotherly love. He's talking about brotherly love. Christians mistakenly presume that this word Philadelphia, since it's a lesser form of love than the word we have agape for God's love, that it's not as important. But Wiersbe points out, because Christians belong to the same family, because they have the same father, they have the same blood flowing through their their veins, they should love one another. Have you noticed that animals do instinctively what is necessary to keep them alive and safe? Fish don't have to go to school to learn how to swim. Birds, by nature, put their wings out and flap in order to fly. Contrary to belief, Look, dogs do not have to be trained to beg. You know how I know this? Because I have a dog now. I walk into the kitchen some mornings. I'll raise the blinds on our back sliding door, and there Maverick has grabbed his bowl and sat it at the back door and is sitting there. It's breakfast time. See, it's our nature. Nature determines action. Nature determines action. Listen to what Peter said in his letter. He said in 2 Peter 1, 4, 
Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. As Christians, born again of the Spirit of God and washed in the blood of Jesus, I proclaim, if that's you, if that describes you, you're a new person. Oh, come on now. There should have been a little bit more participation than that. Like if you're born again, washed in the blood of the Lamb, you are a new person. The Bible tells us that. When I got saved at 17, Luke became a new individual. He became a new man, a new young man at that time. Things began to change in the life. However subtle, things began to change. You know, some say, well, I wasn't this, this really terrible person before I got saved. And so we're, we're kind of grow up with this idea in the church that if the, the more grand the testimony, the more saved somebody is. Can I tell you, that's not true. That is not true. Because why? We're all depraved from birth. We are all evil, wicked, and sinners from birth. And so the same blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross for the sins of the drug addict, he shed for me too, right? And how many is thankful God can save the drug addict? And he can save the rebellious pastor's son who rejected him for years. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God toward all sinners? The moment we got saved, we became new people. We are a new person, distinct, separated to God. And therefore, because God's love has been so impactful in my life, because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in my life, I can love other people. I can love because I know He loves me. You see, 1 John 4 put it this way, we love because He first loved us. Let me ask you a question. In the previous chapter, in verse 12, Paul prayed that these Thessalonians, that their love would increase and abound. Would you agree with me that sometimes you don't feel like loving everybody? It's okay to shake your head right there or nod, or nod your head on that. We often feel not, we don't feel like loving everybody. How many, how many agree that some in the body of the church Christians can be hard to get along with. In fact, sometimes we get, we get you know, we, I, told, I told someone years ago, I said, sometimes I, just, I, I like hanging out with people who don't know the Lord. <laughs> you know, I seem to have a better time, you know, and get along. You know, you deal with all these squabbles sometimes within the church. That's just true. It happens. But families have squabbles, don't they? Families have things they got to work through. We don't often feel like loving everybody. Because you can be used by people, hurt by people. People abandon you. How then does God cause my love to abound? Some would say prayer, prayer, and more prayer. Uh, look, I, I'm, y'all know I'm a pastor. I'm committed to prayer. That's a good answer. Some say study the Word. It's a good answer. Some say let the Holy Spirit fill you with His love. In fact, in Romans 5, 5, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He fills us with love. That's, these are all wonderful answers. But here's a way that we often miss that God builds and, and, and causes our love to increase in our lives as He puts us in circumstances that force us to practice Christian love. He puts us in those circumstances where we're around somebody who's really hard to get along with to see how we're growing in this. Because there's times when you let the Holy Spirit, again, we're going through this on Wednesday night, when you let the fruit of the Holy Spirit manifest themselves in your life, you let the Spirit have control. There's times you just stop, you walk away, and you're really confused. Kid, that person was getting on my nerves. 
but I didn't smack them. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you see that I was kind. I was loving toward that person. You know, and that's God working in your life. God uses His Word. He uses prayer, but He also uses circumstances and puts you in positions to make you practice what you're learning. You see, that's why we can't separate ourselves from the body. See, we may think someone in the church is difficult to get along with. Maybe you don't like the way they, they dress or, or, or uh, you know, for worship or, or, how, or how they do this or how they do that. Maybe they talk too much. But consider, consider this. The difficulties that you have with another believer are an opportunity for you to grow in your love for that person, for you to exhibit Christian love. You see, people today everywhere are looking for a manifestation of God's presence in the church. You see, there are many out here, would you agree, that are rejecting Christ, that will not set foot in the church because of the way they see believers treat one another, because of the things they hear talked about in the public places. Hey, you do understand, when people see you sitting at a table, they know you're a Christian, they're listening to you. They are listening to you. Christians should not be people who are known by their gossip, but they should be people who are known by their godliness and their love for people, especially people they attend church with, especially people that are in the faith. People are looking for hope and a manifestation of the presence of God. And here's what Jesus said. People want to have hope and peace and joy today. I believe that. God has got opportunities waiting on you this week to witness to somebody, to share love with somebody, to talk to someone about their soul, to tell them who Jesus is and how if they follow him, he'll, he'll change them and make them who he desires them to be. God's got people waiting on this, but here, here's the thing. People want it. And often they're not finding it in local assemblies of believers because love is not increasing. Love is decreasing. And Jesus made this statement. He said, by this, all men will know you're my disciples when you what? Have love for one another. By this, by your love for each other, people will know you're my disciples. Because see, the way the world responds when they don't like somebody or somebody gets on their nerves or somebody talks too much and does this or that, they just avoid them. That's not the way Christians act. That is not the way believers act. We don't act that way when we're upset with somebody, especially somebody in our family. We love them. We love them. By this, by your love, men will know you're my disciples. See, we have an obligation to love each other. We have an obligation to have a good testimony to those outside of the church. So what is our relationship with the world? That leads to my last point this morning. Look, it's God's will for us to live holy, to live harmoniously. But the, the third thing is this. It's God's will for you and I to live honestly. To live honestly. Look at verse 11, and we're almost finished this morning. Verse 11. He says, And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. The KJV translates verse 12 as honestly. Honestly. So that you will behave properly so that you will behave honestly. 
It carries the meaning of seemingly or becomingly. In 1 Corinthians 14.40, Paul translated the word, it's translated decently. The emphasis of the word is on the believer's witness to those outside of the fellowship. In other words, non-Christians will not be impressed by how many times you witness to them. They will not be impressed by how many verses of Scripture you have memorized or how much about the Bible you know. They will not be impressed by how many humanitarian deeds you have done and given yourself to. What will catch their eye is when you live your life with honesty, with integrity. It will speak volumes to the lost when you lead, as Paul said, a quiet life and attend to your own business. When Paul uses this phrase, he is referring to one who does not, now listen, what is he talking about when he says leads a quiet life and tends to their own business? He's referring to one who does not present social problems or generate conflict among those people in his life, but whose soul rests easy in the midst of difficulty. In other words, Paul is saying, look, Christians are not ones who stir up drama. That's not going to be what attracts lost people. The world's watching how Christians respond to the pressures of life. How they interact with those they don't agree with. The drama that surrounds that person's life. The world's noticing all of this. And our lives often, they they often speak, in fact, all the time, our lives speak much louder than our words ever will. Paul would later deal with those who did not attend to their own business in the next chapter. I'm sorry, in the next letter he writes to, to, second, to Thessalonians. Then he tells him, he says, work with your hands just as we commanded you. Greek culture looked down on manual labor, but Paul exalts it. He exalts it. Working hard should describe a follower of Christ. Would you agree with that? Working, cry, working hard should describe us as the church. Another word you could insert in verse 12 is the word I've already shared, integrity. Our relationship with those outside of the church ought to be one with integrity. Some may ask, what difference does my life have with the unbeliever? What difference does it make with the unbeliever? See, how we work and live our lives, it speaks volumes to others about our love for God. You know, it's true more than I think we realize. The Apostle Paul, a man of integrity, said this, I discipline my body daily, bring it into all subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself would be disqualified. If you are a Christian, someone who says, I'm following Jesus, you should be a person of integrity, a person of honesty. If someone asks you to do something that is dishonest, young people, listen to me, because this has happened. Look, we are trained today to lie. We are trained to be dishonest and deceitful. And young people, listen to me. If someone asks you at school to be dishonest, you run the other direction. If you think about doing something that's not right, rethink it. Because Jesus is watching and everyone around you. When ministering to other people, there's a saying that goes, What you do speak so loudly that I can't hear what you're saying. 
You see, young people today want respect. They want freedom. They want to be trusted. And how do all of these things come about in a person's life? Listen to me. This is not just for young people. This is for all of us. How is someone trusted and respected and become a person of character and integrity? One right decision at a time. One right decision at a time. Being a man or woman of integrity means doing the right thing in the eyes of God and man, and especially in the eyes of unbelievers, of the unbeliever. Doing the right thing. A person of integrity does the right thing when nobody's watching. And they're by themselves. A person of integrity does what's right. 1 Peter 2 tells us, For this you were called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Again, our actions speak louder than words. In fact, your actions either prove your integrity or they prove your hypocrisy. In Matthew 5, 16, what did the Lord say? He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father who's in heaven. May God help us to be men and women of integrity, young people of integrity, reflecting His holiness in our lives. As we review this message, we see how practical the Christian walk really is. But we're reminded today as we see the will of God for every believer that's here this morning, we see that we can't do this in our own strength, that we need God's help to live for Him, to live in holiness and to live in harmony and to live in honesty. So the question is today, you know, what are you praying about? That's not the question. The question is, are you being obedient to God's will as revealed in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Church, my desire, my hope, is that we would all remain faithful as things get harder and harder for the Christian. And if we're going to remain faithful and persevere in faith and make a lasting difference in the world we live in right now, then I think it's a great idea for us all to heed the wisdom and the exhortation from the Apostle Paul this morning for 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's live holy. Let's live in harmony, and let's live honestly. Let's stand together for prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the truth that speaks to us. And God, I pray that we would be a people that takes seriously what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture. Lord, that we, could do, that we would do all we can in this day and time, to examine our lives, our family. The things we think, the words we say, the actions we take. And ask ourselves, God, do I reflect you or do I reflect my culture? God, in a lot of ways, the church is becoming more and more like the culture when in reality we should be the ones that are influencing the culture to come to Christ. So God, help us today. We need your help. We need your help to live holy as you've called us to. To live in harmony and God, to live in honesty. So God, we ask for your help today. Speak to our hearts. Help us to be a church that you can look at, uh, Lord, and smile upon because you see a people who desire to be obedient to your will. Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. Who would say this morning, Pastor, I have chosen to follow Jesus with my life. 
and I'm seeking to live in obedience to him. I have chosen to follow Jesus, and I'm seeking to live in obedience to him. Can I see your hand this morning? Amen. Amen. If you're here this morning, I could not see every hand, but if you're here this morning, I want to invite you to follow Jesus. I want to invite you to repent. Repent of your sin. And believe the gospel. That Jesus came, he died for your sins on the cross. Rose again the third day so you could walk in newness of life. And follow him with your life in obedience. I'm inviting you today to follow Jesus. If you don't know that, he, that you are following him, that he's your master and Lord, please, please consider following him before it's too late. He's the only answer. There is no other answer in the world. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse as time goes on. And the only way you'll live with peace, hope, meaning in your life is to follow Jesus. I invite you to follow him before it's too late. This morning as God's worked in hearts, the altar is open today. But it may be appropriate to just stand there with your family. You can come to the altar if you desire to. Would you reflect on what Paul is teaching us today from 1 Thessalonians 4 about the will of God and ask yourself, are you being obedient to the will of God for your life? Are you being obedient in these areas? As God deals with your heart, as things come to mind, would you just confess those things, thank God for his forgiveness, and ask God for his help as you seek to be obedient to his will, as you seek to remain faithful during the difficult days in which we live. I invite you to do that now. Again, you can come to the altar if you feel so led. Let's spend some time this morning as Eric leads us with your Heavenly Father. this morning, God, continue to speak to our hearts. Lord, help us to live out the truth that has been presented today. God, help us to follow your will and be obedient to it. Help us to live holy lives. God, that's what you've called us to. Lord, help us to live in harmony with one another. God, help us to increase and abound in love. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would live honestly for a world that's watching. Help us to be men, women, young people of integrity and make a difference in the lives of those, God, in our community and reach them with the gospel. Lord, we thank you today for working in our hearts. I pray all this in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask Brother Brother Randy Orgeron to close us in prayer. Brother Butch, close us in prayer.